and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wichita Journalism Collaborative, The Voice, Blavity, Ebony, The Root, Associated Press, Refinery 29 from Unbothered, News One, and The New York Times. Today, I'll begin with an article from The Voice titled, Do You Know Your Rights as a Tenant in Wichita? Written by the Wichita Journalism Collaborative, The Voice, June 18, 2023. Wichita's Housing and Community Services hosted a town hall last month at Century 2, guiding attendees on what legal rights a tenant has and what to expect if they face eviction. Nate Johnson, N-A-T-E, Assistant Attorney for the City, led the presentation. Also at the front of the room were Steve Minson, M-I-N-S-O-N, from Kansas Legal Services, and a neighborhood inspector from the department. Housing becomes really personal beyond the legal, Johnson said, introducing the panel. But understanding the legal might help us know what our rights are, what consequences might be, and what benefits come from certain actions and thus facilitate a better relationship between a landlord and a tenant. As a reminder, Planeta Venus, P-L-A-N-E-T-A, is not providing legal advice. We attended and reported this meeting to offer as much information as possible for our audience. An informed reader is an empowered one. Any questions specific to legal advice should be referred to private attorneys or organizations such as Kansas Legal Services, a legal aid for low-income Kansans. What tenants' rights look like in Kansas law? Johnson started the town hall reviewing two landlord-tenant statutes in state law, the Kansas Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, K-R-L-T-A, and the Mobile Home Parks Residential Landlord and Tenant Act. What I'm going to focus on here is the eviction process in Sedgwick County, Johnson said, emphasizing that despite his city role as an assistant attorney, he was not present to speak on behalf of the city. Johnson explained that evictions are defined in Kansas law, but happen at a county level. Every county has a little bit of discretion, a little bit of flexibility to be able to do what they want within the bounds of the law, he said. According to state law, there are four kinds of evictions. Self-help, when a landlord attempts to remove the tenant themselves, illegal in Kansas. It's a violation of basic legal principles, according to Johnson. Non-payment of rent. When someone is behind on rent, a landlord is obligated to provide a three-day notice that they must pay or the landlord will seek eviction and activate the court process. Material non-compliance with lease. Issues exclusive to non-payment of rent, 
such as property damage or a tenant. Landlords can give a 30-day notice for this, but must provide 14 days of notice to correct the issue before termination at 30. Termination of tenancy. Tenant moves out without an eviction. Usually the tenant provides at least a 30 or 60 day notice, depending on the lease you sign. Eviction cannot occur without a court order. Eviction is not just the terminology of the tenancy. It's not just someone being behind on rent. It's not the start of the court process. It's not even the trial, Johnson said. Eviction cannot occur without an order from the court saying the landlord has the power to remove the tenant through the sheriff or prosecutor. Without that court order, it is not legal in Kansas for landlords to evict. What proper notice of an eviction looks like? According to Johnson, the biggest issue that comes up in court is an eviction's proper notice. The judge has to determine whether the notice was properly provided in the eviction case. If it's not provided, tenants usually prevail in the eviction case. The landlord needs to deliver a written copy of notice to terminate the lease and notice to leave the premises. These two types of notice are usually combined into one. These are not court documents. A notice to leave the premises must be delivered at least three days before an eviction is filed. After the notice period passes, the landlord can file a petition in court. Afterwards, the tenant will receive a summons to appear in court. According to Johnson, tenants need to appear in person by counsel or file a written response before the first hearing. If a tenant denies the allegations behind the landlord's petition, a county trial will be set within 14 days. If a tenant does not respond to the summons, it is default judgment for the landlord. Even if the tenant touches base with the court after that, it is up to the landlord to move forward. What to consider when moving into a new lease? Make sure you understand your rental agreement, which can be written or oral in the state of Kansas. What regular payments do you owe as a tenant? Complete an inventory of your space. It's not legally required, but could be significant. Note damages, wonky appliances, etc. Take pictures and videos. Understand the terms of your security deposit. What does the landlord expect from you, a tenant, before releasing your deposit back to you after your lease is over? Kansas Legal Services, on where habitality responsibilities lie for a landlord versus tenant. The landlord is responsible for providing living conditions, which includes running water, plumbing, heat, electricity, and other essentials. As a tenant, you must pay your monthly rent. According to Kansas Legal Services, this obligation to pay rent is separate and distinct from your landlord's obligation to provide a livable property. In other words, if you withhold rent because your residence has a serious maintenance or utility program, your landlord can still try to evict you for non-payment of rent. One of the most basic rights is that you have a right habitable premises that you're paying for, Steve Minson, M-I-N-S-O-N. An attorney with Kansas Legal Services said during the town hall, even if the lease doesn't say so, your apartment or home you're renting is supposed to comply with the housing code. At the least, things that affect your health and safety 
smoke detectors, windows that open, a furnace that needs work in the wintertime. Minson also said that although providing air conditioning isn't an explicit mandate, any rental home that already comes with an air conditioner needs to be fixed if it breaks. I've had a case where it's the hottest day of the year and the AC goes out and the landlord is not fixing it or seeming to take any significant steps towards getting it fixed. That's a habitality program. That's a breach of the Kansas Landlord Act, he said. If you, your family, guests, or pets cause damage to the property, the landlord isn't responsible to repair the damage. For example, the landlord isn't at fault if your water shuts off because you were unable to pay for the utility. Another example, if your sewer backs up, the landlord is responsible for maintenance, but if you cause the problem, your landlord can charge you for repairs. Another piece of advice from Minson, make it a habit to request maintenance in writing. If a landlord is being difficult about repairs, you can pursue a 14-30-day notice, Minson said. The Kansas Residential Landlord and Tenant Act gives a tenant the right to eventually break lease if a landlord continually fails to meet maintenance or contract agreements. To do so, a tenant must give the landlord a written notice of at least 30 days before rent is due. The law says to be explicit in what repairs or other actions are necessary and that you intend to move out before the next rent due date unless the repairs or actions are taken care of within 14 days of given notice. Make these repairs in 14 days. List them out. It's got to be in writing, Vincent said. It's not notarized. It's not a court document. It could be pencil on a notebook paper. I take a photo of it and then get it to the landlord. If the problem is not fixed or a good faith effort has started, within the 14 days, the tenant can terminate the lease. This article is titled, Do You Know Your Rights as a Tenant in Wichita? by Wichita Journalism Collaborative, The Voice, June 18, 2023. The next article is titled, Maryland Lawmaker Reintroduces Bill to Posthumously Award Congressional Gold Medal to Henrietta Lacks. Written by Jahara Michelle, J-A-H-A-U-R-A, Blavity, June 16, 2023. Maryland U.S. Representative Kwesi Mufume, Democrat, Maryland, reintroduced a bill Wednesday, award a Congressional Gold Medal to Henrietta Lacks. To posthumously award a Congressional Gold Medal to Henrietta Lacks, L-A-C-K-S. Mufume was joined by Congressional Black Caucus Chairman Stephen Horsford, H-O-R-S-F-O-R-D, Democrat, Nevada, U.S. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat, Texas, Civil Rights Attorney Benjamin Crump, C-R-U-M-P, and Lacks family as they work toward honoring Lacks for her contribution to modern science, the GRIO reported. Today, I announced my legislation to honor hashtag Henrietta Lacks with the hashtag Congressional Gold Medal. Mrs. Lacks, hashtag he 
Lascelles, altered the future of medical science. I encourage my colleagues to join me in further immortalizing her legacy with our highest expression of national recognition, Ufume tweeted. Lax was reportedly diagnosed with cervical cancer at John Hopkins Hospital in 1951, WBAL-TV reported. Today, the tissue known as HeLa cells, which were harvested without lax consent, has been used by researchers to create vaccines for polio, COVID-19, and various cancer treatments. HeLa cells revolutionized medical research and numerous medical breakthroughs, Horsford said in a statement obtained by the GRIO. Ms. Lax, nor her family, would receive recognition or credit, nor would they be made aware of the existence or use of HeLa cells for many years after her passing. As Blavity reported, Lax is being honored with a bronze statue in her hometown of Roanoke, Virginia, and a preliminary drawing of the piece was revealed in December 2022. Artist Bryce Cobbs, C-O-B-B-S, created the masterpiece, and it's scheduled for public viewing in October 2023. At the time, Cobbs told ABC News he was honored to create the art piece and proud to be part of history with Lex. The fact that I'm involved in this project means the world, Cobbs said, at a press conference, according to the outlet. I'm humbled to be a part of history in this way, and just to be trusted with the task of making sure that I captured Mrs. Henrietta Lacks the best way I could. This article is titled, Maryland Lawmaker Reintroduces Bill to Award Congressional Gold Medal to Henrietta Lacks by Jahuria Michelle Blavity, June 16, 2023. The next article is in Ebony, titled, The Singular Serenity of John Boyega, B-O-Y-E-G-A. Story by Jimmy Famurewa, J-I-M-I-F-A-M-U-R-E-W-A. Photos by Keith Major for Ebony Media. After three post-Star Wars years for artistic growth, and gusty career choices, John Boyga is about to take his biggest swing yet with the They Cloned Tyrone. But while he's grappling with duplicated humans on camera away from it, the London-born actor's approach and attitude are anything but cookie cutter. John Boyga has never presented as someone who lacks in confidence. For the moment, the London-born actor of Nigerian descent burst into public prominence as the steely young lead in the subversive sci-fi adventure Attack the Block. His trademark has been kind of palpable, radiating glow of self-belief. He was the preternatural, the preternaturally magnetic performer holding his own opposite screen veterans with 10 times his experience. The luminous human charm bomb who was as comfortable swinging a toy lightsaber on a chat show as he was addressing a rapturous crowd at a Black Lives Matter protest. 
Even so, things have sharpened and shifted recently. A professionally and personally transformative three years, a period that has seen him play a pre-colonial West African ruler in The Woman King, embody a PTSD-afflicted war veteran in Breaking, and win a Golden Globe for his turn as a trailblazing Black British policeman in Steve McQueen's Small Axe Anthology, have given new texture and definition to his faith in his own abilities. I knew I had it during filming of the Star Wars franchise. He tells me now, beaming in from Atlanta and crisply dressed in a pinstriped tunic shirt. But now I know I have it, have it. The next phase in this run of bold, eclectic career choices might be the most striking and singular yet. Described by Boyega as Hood Scooby-Doo and co-starring Jamie Foxx and Tayona Paris, P-A-R-R-I-S, the long-awaited Netflix tentpole, They Clone Tyrone, is set to be one of the summer's most talked-about movies. There's just so many elements of genres clashed together, said Boyga, grinning with admiration. What's more, his depiction of Fontaine, the grill-wearing drug dealer who, as the film title suggests, finds out he might not be quite who he thinks he is, reaffirms Boyega's range and development as an actor. Throw in his forthcoming work as a producer and philanthropist, plus his devotion to horseback riding, yes, really, and this new film feels like the herald of a broader period of growth and unburdened creative freedom, an age which Boyega has a firm hand in defining the narratives around him. He might still be best known for his key role, Defibrillation, of one of the biggest film franchises in history. But in more ways than one, he's looking to the future rather than the past. Ebony. They clone Tyrone contains so many fascinating multitudes, and it sneaks really challenging themes into what ostensibly a popcorn movie. Was that part of the appeal? John Boyega. We've heard some feedback here and there, and a lot of people go, yeah, it's funny, it's funny. But then they go, there's a poignant lesson in it. And I feel the same way because I forgot about the details of the film. And when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, there's so much nuance in it. People that have seen it walked in expecting a comedy, slapstick fun, which is obviously in there, but they didn't think they would be deep in thought long after the film about the many Easter eggs that are in there, the moral lessons and the social commentary. Ebony. Writer-director Jewel Taylor, J-U-E-L, chose to set the film in an alternative present-day universe of 1970s cars, fictional fried chicken chains, drive-bys, and sex workers and pimps. What did you make of it as an exploration and interrogation of Black cultural stereotypes? There's a lot of that, and that was fun to play with. I think a lot of films I've done so far have been an exploration of the Black experience. Like, I've been able to be a king, be a man with PTSD who's on his last legs, and now I play a Black guy in a made-up hood who discovers he's a clone. 
you know, that in itself is just different tones of storytelling within the culture. If the stereotypes were by themselves and just a ploy to tell the story, then I'd be like, whoa, whoa. But because part of the key of the story is to present the stereotypes and tie in this message in an entertaining way, for me, I was just like, yeah, this script is brilliant. Ebony, how do you approach playing Fontaine, your character in They Clone Tyrone? John Boyga, well, I didn't have much time. This was during the pandemic, before The Woman King. And then after that, I went to Breaking. But Jewel Taylor is the truth. He had a vision. When your director knows exactly what he wants from your portrayal of a character, then you're given as much help as you need. A lot of the time, Jewel and I were on the same page. But there were a few assumptions that Jewel was able to come in and flip on their head. I was kind of like, is my character a guy that just comes in guns blazing and doesn't care? And Jewel was like, nah, there are certain scenes that you don't need to play like paid in full. You've kind of got to play like he's tired. This dude is aware that he's in the movie and it's just continuous. So the clone aspect is the main thing that anchors him. Because he's a clone and he was created in a lab. The audience doesn't know it, but you have to, in your head, make those decisions and have him do certain things that are subtly over the top. Even the way he walks, where he puts his hand. It wasn't about thinking about what a real dude in the situation would be. It's more about if he's a clone, how would he go about it? And what are the stereotypes that would be put in there for a synthetic person? That's fun. Definitely comes across in the film. How did you build a relationship and rapport with Jamie Foxx and Tayona Paris? Boyega. There's a lot resting on the chemistry, but you know, Jamie and I had met before. I think I met him at D23, Disney's Biennial Fan Expo, and preview showcase for the upcoming projects. And we were both promoting big Disney movies at the time. I think there's something about Jamie's energy that just brings everybody together. It's not hard to have chemistry with Jamie Foxx because he's a very sociable, outgoing guy who connects quite well with people. So I'd say that Jamie was that essential bridge between me and Tayona to get our flow going. And Tayona, she's funny. She's beautiful, but she's also funny. Very talented, very smart. So the combination just worked. There are a lot of improvisation in a Jamie Foxx movie. That's like mandatory. Jamie was writing some new scenes with certain improvisations. Ebony. Obviously, it must be strange to promote the movie, given the situation with Jamie's help. Much like everybody else, I'm just hoping that he gets well. So full hopes and wishing him all the best in his recovery. This article was an excerpt from Ebony titled The Singular Serenity of John Boyga by Jimmy Famuriwa. Ebony. June 2023. The next article is titled, Need a Side Hustle? These Two NOLA-Based Sisters Got You. By Angela Johnson, The Root, May 4th, 2023. For Sisters Tamara, Tammy, Amor, A-R-M-O-U-R, 
and Crystal D. McDonald. Entrepreneurship is a family affair. Their mother was a teacher who ran a home-based business on the side, while their father was an entrepreneur in the hospitality industry. Now the pair is taking a page from their parents' book and hoping to take it to a whole new level. Their New Orleans-based staffing agency, Talent Activated, connects job seekers with opportunities for work at festivals, conventions, and other events. The Root spoke with Tammy Amore and Crystal McDonald about their business and the impact they hope it will have on closing the wealth gap in New Orleans. Amore, a 15-year marketing executive from the spirits industry, and McDonald, an entrepreneur with a background in hospitality, describe themselves as solutions-oriented, and they say they were motivated to start their company as a vehicle to create employment opportunities that were desperately needed in their community. New Orleans is a place with a very thin middle class. It's clear who does and who does not have things. And it was tough to see people living like that every day and not want to do something about it, Amor said. When we think about how we show up in the world, we think about how our ideas can solve a need for other people. We've both been very blessed and we've always had a need to give back. But getting their idea off the ground wasn't easy, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our business model is based on experiential activations and the gig economy. And when COVID happened, everything shut down. All the live events and spaces where we thought we had tons of opportunities when we started. I'm really proud of us for weathering that storm as a new business. But since its launch, Talent Activated has staffed a wide range of events and experiences, including Houston poll locations during the 2020 presidential election and the widely popular Essence Festival in New Orleans. And they've placed everyone from teachers to scientists looking for opportunities to channel their interests and experience into ways to earn extra money. The gig economy is growing. The sisters say that while the pandemic helped kickstart the great resignation, the gig economy is showing no signs of slowing down. McDonald and Amor are excited about employees taking their happiness into their own hands, and they're confident that more people will start to prioritize work-life balance. Our parents worked at companies for 30 years and retired with a cake and a watch. That was the pinnacle of success at the time. But I think we're at a place now where people look at life like a pie and think about work as just a piece of it, Amor said. People recognize that they can do multiple things with the skills they have, and they want permission to be able to explore them more freely. And according to McDonald, employers need to get on board and allow their staff more flexibility in how they work, unless they want to be left behind. We're not going back to where we were three years ago, she said. People left their jobs to find their purpose, and now they're coming back to work under their terms, driven by a mission. Although they admit 
that entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. The sisters say they are driven by their mission to help others and inspire other black women to follow in their footsteps. We both work full-time jobs for other people, but we feel led to do this. That's why we get up at 5.30 a.m. in the morning and are on email. We know that what we are doing directly impacts how we have to change so we can close the wealth gap for Black Americans, McDonald said. This article is titled, Need a Side Hustle? These Two NOLA-Based Sisters Got You, by Angela Johnson, The Root, May 4, 2023. The next article is titled, U.S. Has Two Men Tennis Players in Top 10 After Tiafo, T-I-A-F-O-E, Beats Struff, S-T-R-U-F-F, for First Grass Title, written by the Associated Press for The Griot, June 18, 2023. There will be two American men's tennis players ranked in the top 10 for the first time in more than a decade after Francis Tiafo beat Jan Leonard Struff on Sunday to win the Stuttgart S-T-U-T-T-G-A-R-T Open for his first grass court title. Tiafo won 4-6, 7-6-1, after saving a match point in the deciding tiebreaker and will move up to a career-high ranking of 10th on Monday, up from 12th. Along with Taylor Fritz in 8th, the U.S. has two men in the top 10 for the first time since Marty Fish, M-A-R-D-Y-F-I-S-H, and John Isner, I-S-N-E-R, were 9th and 10th in May 2012, the ATP Tour said. Tiafo failed to convert his first match point at 6-5 in the decisive tiebreaker when he hit into the net after the longest rally of the match. Struff then had a match point of his own at 7-6, which Tiafo saved with a backhand. The miscued return cost Tiafo his second match point before a hectic finish on his third, when he hit a smash only for Struff to somehow return it, before Tiafo finished off the win with an instinctive volley at the net. I got super lucky there on match point. I still don't know how I hauled it over the net, but I'll take it, Tiafo said. Tiafo won the final despite not having a single break of serve against Struff, who hit 28 aces. Tiafo's tournament has been packed with tiebreakers. Six of the 10 sets he played in Stugard finished that way and he saved six set points in another tiebreaker for his semi-final win over Martin Fuchsovics, F-U-C-S-O-V-I-C-S. Tiafo moves to 3-4 in career finals with his second tournament win of the year after beating Tomas Martin Echeverry for the Houston title on clay in April. This article is titled, U.S. Men has two men tennis players in top 10 after Tiafo 
beats Struff for first grass title. Written by Associated Press, The Griot, June 18, 2023. The next article is titled, Four WNBA Players on What Inspired Their Draft Day Outfits. Written by Shah Ravine Spencer, S-H-A-R-A-V-I-N-E, Refinery 29, from Unbothered, April 14, 2023. The WNBA draft brings together star basketball players from all over the world with immaculate collegiate careers at stateside schools to announce which professional women's basketball team these stars will be drafted into. For the 2023 WNBA draft, these talented ladies are welcome to Spring Studios in New York City for a special night that many of them have dreamed of since they first learned how to dribble a ball. These athletes are known for their impressive basketball stats, awards, championship wins, and other high-level accolades. But we'd be remiss that the draft is as much about the fashion as it is about the sport. Millions of eyes zero in on these players for arguably one of the biggest nights of their lives. And they're sure to put their most fashionable foot forward as they walk the orange carpet before entering the studio to hear what will be a life-changing draft decision. This year, the 2023 WNBA draftees didn't disappoint. Every outfit emphasized the stars that they are on and off the court. Bright colored suits, dramatic dresses, glitzy bling. Each choice not only represented their personalities, but also served as odes to the communities that helped get them to this point. We caught up with top draft picks, Zia Cook, Haley Jones, Jordan Horston, H-O-R-S-T-O-N, and Bria Beal, B-E-A-L, on the coveted orange carpet for a rundown on the deeper meanings behind their 2023 WNBA Draft Day looks. Zia Cook, Z-I-A, Cook, C-O-O-K-E, South Carolina, Draft Pick, Los Angeles Sparks Guard, Round 1, Number 10, Vibe, Elegance. It takes a village to accomplish many things, and Los Angeles Sparks newbie, Zia Cook, called on hers from her hometown of Ohio to be her glam squad for the big night. Cook shared that off the court. She's super goofy and very family-oriented, so it was no surprise that she recruited her friends and family to help come up with the vision for her show-stopping draft day look. My mom picked my hairstyle, and my friend Lauren, a Cleveland-based hairstylist, styled my hair, explained of her glam team. It was all them. I just agreed to the things that I liked, and they just sat me down and got me right. Cook's hair was styled in sleek, soft curls and pushed into a messy bun that featured two face-framing curled pieces and a few loose curled strands around her head to achieve the messy look. As for her makeup, she decided to go for a more natural glam look to allow her dress to make the statement. A long, 
frame-fitting black gown with the peekaboo chest cutout featuring a skin tone mesh guard bordered by large silver embellishment appliques. I wanted to come very classy, she said. I told my team, let's go very classy. It's giving Grammys. She played further into the upscale vibe by keeping her accessories more muted, opting for a small Chanel logo earrings and a silver cult Gaia clutch. Cook's look may have wowed many on the carpet and on social media, but that's normal for her. She considers herself a true fashion girl off the court. I love fashion, she shared. My parents instilled a love of fashion in me, so I grew up watching them. I don't often get a chance to tap into my fashion bag, so it always feels good when I'm able to show that real girly side that I have. When you play basketball, you don't have a chance to do that, especially with how hardworking I am. Cook has demonstrated that range through a number of beauty partnerships, through NIL opportunities, and she hopes to secure more in the future. That's what I want to get into more, said Cook. Being pretty is what I love, as is being around beautiful women. And I think we deserve to show ourselves. So definitely, whatever companies decide to work with me, I'm going to give it my all and see where it goes. When asked about why she chose black for the night, Cook revealed that she originally wanted her whole family to wear black and she'd wear a different color to stand out. But during the designing process, the black gown screamed classy and that was the exact vibe she was going for. She'd been dreaming of this night since she was six years old and being able to finally live that moment was truly special. I cried when I saw myself because I had a vision, Cook admitted. I'm really big on fashion, so when things don't go exactly how I wanted, it hurts my feelings. I was really happy to see the look I had in my head come together. Haley Jones, Stanford University, draft pick, Atlanta Dream Guard, round one, number six, vibe, sophisticated chic. Power suits were a common occurrence on the 2023 WNBA orange carpet, but there was none more eye-catching than Haley Jones' bright green three-piece skirt suit with velvet shoulder pads. My favorite color recently has been green, so we decided to go with this spring look by Sergio Hudson, she said. The look was paired with gold metallic shoes by Not Your Average Size, which Jones noted are made for tall girls. Jones also decided to keep her hair, makeup, and jewelry very sleek and understated to ensure the fashion was the focal point. I like beauty and fashion, and I felt like tonight was the night to really step out with a pop of color, Jones offered. I wanted the outfit to be the centerpiece of the look, and everything else was just an add-on. I have a little bit of bling, and my nails are done, but the set is to the main thing. Her hair was in box braids that were framed away from her face and featured loose curls, and her makeup, she opted for natural glam. I like to look glowy, and I like to look like me, but a little elevated for the occasion, Joan smiled. As for why she decided to pick such a unique suit set, Joan said she was determined to make a statement. I was trying to show confidence. This is a power suit and I feel like I'm about 70% legs, 
So I figured I'd show them. My outfit really just shows that I'm confident, chic, and professional, but also that I can show a little skin and still keep that modesty to it. Jordan Horston, Tennessee. Draft pick. Seattle Storm Guard, round one, number nine. Vibe, sleek and tailored. Jordan Horston's style is much like her personality. Unique, outgoing, with a quiet confidence you can't miss. She strolled onto the carpet in a head-to-toe, sleek, almost all-black designer look, courtesy of Louis Vuitton. The look consisted of a black and gray checkered LV monogram blazer on top of a white buttoned-up paired with black slacks and matching black LV monogram loafers. My personality style is very unique. I'm different. I'm definitely a trend setter. I'm a leader, Horston answered passionately on the carpet. Everything about me has a little spice to it. I'm like the seasoned chicken that your grandma cooked. In other words, her taste in clothing is impeccable. Although her orange carpet looked sharp and well put together, she'd actually purchased it just the night before. Honestly, it was last minute thrown together. It was simple, but you can see it. I literally got it yesterday, she admitted with a sheepish grin. To add to the swag of her look, Horston styled her black and blonde dyed locks in a half-up, half-down ponytail style and finished the look off dripping in diamonds. She layered three different size diamond necklaces that matched a diamond bracelet and earrings supplied by Happy Jewelers. Horston defined her orange carpet fashion as calm and clean and revealed that she was styled by her stylist, Chloe, and her agents, Marcus and Brandon. Not to be forgotten, Horston's manicure also took the look up several notches, featuring several designs like a matching checkered print, a red fire print, and bling. Bria Beal, South Carolina. Draft picked. Minnesota Lynx Guard, round two, number 24. Vibe, pop of personality. Vibrant spring colors were a hit for a few of the WNBA hopefuls. And Bria Beal did not disappoint in a hot pink tailored power suit. Beal excitedly revealed that her favorite color is pink. So much so that when she got her individual lashes done for draft night, she made sure to request that hot pink stripes be included in the set. Though she doesn't necessarily identify as a beauty girl, Beale simply cannot go without one beauty essential, lashes. I love lashes, she said. A lot of the lash girls know that when they're off, you feel like a whole different person. For the rest of her glam, however, she wanted to lean into her preference for understated makeup for her draft night. I'm more of a natural girl, and if I do makeup, it's more of like concealer because I feel like if I try to go for a full face, it would be a whole different shade than my neck. She trusted her makeup artist fully, and they went for a soft glam look with a little smokiness at the lash line and a pop of pink to align with her outfit. To add drama to the more natural makeup, Beale picked out a bralette that was covered in crystals on the cups and featured crystals dripping off 
asymmetrically. She also wore a custom diamond necklace that featured her initials, and she finished the look with black and silver blinged out lace-up heels that added the perfect amount of sparkle to peek out from her perfectly tailored hot pink suit pants. Of course, everything was in her favorite color. I love pink in general. It's like my favorite color, like hot pink, so I think my outfit will show personality. This article is titled, Four NBA Players on What Inspired Their Draft Day Outfits by Ravine Spencer, Refinery29 from Unbothered, April 14, 2023. The next article is titled, The Brothers of Pine Oak, The Mysterious Disappearance of a Slave Family Searching for Freedom, written by Bilal G. Morris, News 1, June 12, 2023. Often these stories can be very difficult to find. They aren't taught to us in schools, and many of them can't be traced in reports or newspaper clippings. This is when we turn to our storytellers, the authors who embody a part of our culture that has been hidden by history's victors. One of those authors who dedicated their life to telling the lost stories of Black Americans is Patricia C. McKissick, M-C-K-I-S-S-A-C-K. Since I began writing Black Folklore in 2020, I have been introduced to a side of Black history that I never knew existed. Extraordinary supernatural tales of ghosts and spirits intertwined with real-life events from Black history. As amazing as those tales have been thus far, they're nothing compared to the world that was introduced to me after reading Patricia C. McKissick's book, Dark 30 Southern Tales of the Supernatural. Her 1992 children's novel, which won a Newbery Honor and Coretta Scott King Award in 1993, tells the tales of supernatural activity occurring throughout times of slavery and civil rights. In the antebellum South, one of the most mesmerizing stories from McKissick's tales is the story of the Pine Oak Brothers, Henry, H-E-N-R-I, and Harper. The story begins with a Tennessee slave owner named Amos McAvoy, M-C-A-V-O-Y. Amos was the master of a plantation called Pine Oak, which was built in 1901, the same year Thomas Jefferson became president. Amos inherited the plantation from his father and had aspirations to pass it down to his son. He would eventually meet his love, Alva Dean, D-E-A-N, marrying her and uniting two prominent slave-owning families for better profits. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike the McAvoy family as Alva died while giving birth to Amos's firstborn, Harper. Her death traumatized Amos so much that he abandoned his newborn son, Harper, and the Pine Oak Plantation, fleeing to New Orleans. For the next 10 years, Amos would only come back to Pine Oak for a few weeks out of the year during harvest season, leaving Harper with his grandmother. Harper yearned for his father's love, but rarely got it. Then, one day, everything changed. 
Amos came back to Tennessee, wanting to reconcile with his son. So he moved Harper back to Pine Oak in hopes to better the relationship. Amos then headed to New Orleans to find some business before permanently moving back to Pine Oak. When he returned, he wasn't alone. Accompanying Amos was a mulatto child about two years younger than Harper. The boy's name was Henry, and Harper immediately noticed how much he resembled his father. When rumors started to swirl that Amos was Henry's father, Amos never denied it. He would eventually admit to Harper's grandmother that he was the boy's father, telling her that the child's mother was dead and that he didn't want another slave owner to mistreat him. Against everyone's wishes, Amos brought Henry into Pine Oak, putting him in charge of the stables. This infuriated Harper, who grew more and more jealous of Henry and his relationship with his father, even though Henry was a slave. Harper's jealousy for Henry would completely consume him as his hate for his brother was the only thing he could think about. Henry was a harder worker and never complained about his bondage. He was eventually put in charge of Pine Oak operations and was allowed to marry the love of his life, Charlemagne, C-H-A-R-L-E-M-A-E, another slave that lived on the plantation. Amos also broke the news to Henry that he wasn't actually a slave, but a free man. Henry's mother was freed by her mother after she was born, which meant Henry, by law, wasn't a slave. Amos apologized for keeping this from him, telling Henry he didn't want him running away before he could take care of himself. Surprisingly, Henry already knew he was free. His mother would often remind him of his freedom before she died. Henry promised Amos that he would stay on to run Pine Oak as long as he could be paid for his services. His goal was to buy his wife's freedom and then leave Pine Oak to start a new life. A few years later, Amos fell very ill. On his deathbed, he called out to his son and Harper, who was set to inherit the entire estate, came to his father's aid. Amos's last word to Harper was, Henry, tell him. Amos died before finishing the sentence. This made Harper very angry, and he dismissed his father's last words. When Henry asked Harper if their father had mentioned anything, about freeing his wife, Charlemagne, Harper said no, lying to Henry, telling him that their father suggested he sell his brother. He also threatened to keep Harper's wife and new child out of spite. But Henry never wavered or lost composure. Instead, he brought to Harper's attention that Pine Oak was failing, and now that their father was gone, they'd have to work together to keep the place afloat. But Harper ignored him and continued to live a life of lavish, spending the plantation money on liquor and bad business decisions. When the bank came to collect, the first thing Harper sold was Henry, not knowing that he actually wasn't an asset to sell. Henry approached Harper, explaining to him that he wasn't a slave and could not be sold. Confused, Harper questioned the validity of Henry's claim, stating that his father never told him that. But Henry had the paperwork and showed it to his half-brother. But Harper had already made the sale, and the slavers were coming tomorrow to pick up their buck. When the slavers arrived at Pine Oak, 
Harper tried explaining that Henry was a free man and tried to entice the men to purchase Henry's family instead. But the men only wanted Henry. When Harper went to fetch Henry, he was furious to learn that Henry and his family had escaped during the night. The slavers accompanied by Harper and their slave-catching hounds began their search for the runaway slave family. The dogs chased the slave family along the Tops River, T-O-P-P-S, swiftly erasing the family's head start they had gained the night before. As Henry and his family approached a crashing waterfall, they quickly realized they had run out of places to escape. Desperately trying to keep the dogs off their tail, in a last-ditch effort, the family climbed a steep cliff that hung over the waterfall. They had nowhere else to run. Harper demanded that Henry and Charlemagne surrender, following the family to the edge of the cliff, but their destiny had different plans. Charlemagne handed their baby to Henry, then leaped into the raging waterfall. Henry then clutched his baby and dove into the waterfall behind Charlemagne. Shocked at what he had just witnessed, Harper climbed to the spot that Henry just jumped from and gazed into the water, searching for signs of life. All of a sudden, three beautiful birds, a mother, father, and a child bird, swoop from under the waterfall right past Harper and fly north. Frustrated at losing his brother, Harper curses the birds, yelling at them to come back until he loses his balance and falls into the raging waterfall. A few days later, Harper's body is found downstream. Henry, Charlemagne, and their young baby boy were never found or heard from again. McKissick's tale of the Pine Oak Brothers and the mysterious disappearance of Henry and his family is just one of ten amazing tales told in Dark Thirty, Southern Tales of the Supernatural. Although McKissick died in 2017, her legacy lives on through these extraordinary tales. This article is titled, The Brothers of Pine Oak, The Mysterious Disappearance of a Slave Family Searching for Freedom, written by Bilal G. Morris, News 1, June 12, 2023. Next, a special article from ESPN titled, Amen Asar, A-M-E-N, A-U-S-A-R, Thompson, First Brothers Taken in Top 5 of Same NBA Draft. Written by Eric Woodyard, W-O-O-D-Y-A-R-D, ESPN, June 22, 2023. History was made inside Barclays Center in Brooklyn during the 2023 NBA Draft Thursday night when Commissioner Adam Silver announced brothers Amen and Asar Thompson as back-to-back draft pick. The Houston Rockets selected Amen number four overall, and the Detroit Pistons then drafted Asar at number five. They became the first brothers to be drafted in the top five of the same draft since the 1976 ABA-NBA merger per ESPN stats and information. The Thompsons also joined Lonzo and LaMelo Ball, L-O-N-Z-O, 
L-A-M-E-L-O, as the only brothers to both go in the top five in a draft in the modern era. I think it's kind of cool going first. It means a lot to my family, Amen said. Me and Asar, we were going to be happy whoever went first. But it means a lot to my family seeing all the hard work pay off. We go way back to be the first twins in the same draft to go top five. It means a lot. Their mother, Maya Wilson, agreed. There are no words to really express how I'm feeling, she told ESPN, following the pics. To see them back to back, that blows my mind. The world is just opening up to them. There's no limit. So I'm just very excited about what's in store. So very, very happy. The twins both starred for the City Reapers in the Overtime Elite League, where they captured OTE titles. Amen will now join a Rockets team that finished 22-60 to 60, while ranking 27th in offensive efficiency and 29th in defensive efficiency. His skills were impressive to league scouts. Just being in the NBA, you know, playing with these athletic guys, I feel like my best brand of basketball is running. And we're a young team, so that's what we're going to do, Amen said. Asar will also try to help a Pistons team that went 17-65 to this past season and has gone 15 consecutive seasons without a playoff victory, which is the longest active drought in the league. The Pistons also selected Jaden Ivey, I-V-E-Y, with the number five pick in 2022, and Cade Cunningham at number one in 2021, and recently hired former Phoenix Suns Coach of the Year, Monty Williams. Super excited. I'm super excited to meet my coaches, meet my teammates, and just grow with them, Asar said. I'm trying to contend. Now that their lifelong goal of reaching the NBA is fulfilled, their father, Troy Thompson, shared his vision for their next chapter. The vision now is to become leaders on their team, Troy said. Obviously, being at least first team all-rookie and maybe compete for Rookie of the Year, we've got big ambitions. This article is titled, Amen Asar Thompson, First Brothers Taken in Top 5 of Same NBA Draft, written by Eric Woodyard, ESPN, June 22nd, 2023. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankle. Thanks for joining me. 